Exodus chapter 20, verse 16. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. It's been said that if you don't know where you've been, then you're not going to know where you're going. That if you don't know history, that you're doomed to make the same mistakes of history. And that by definition, insanity is doing the same thing over and over and again and expecting different results. We've probably all heard at least one of these truths before. And more than likely, we agree with them. And then we continue on as we have been, acting insane by our own admission. Take, for instance, these Ten Commandments. How many of us here, prior to beginning this series, had ever viewed the Ten Commandments as anything more than just a to-do list? A to-do list given by God. How many here actually thought that it was possible to fulfill them, at least some of them? And how many here thought that we understood the purpose of them? Thinking that since God through Paul tells us that the law was our schoolmaster, our guardian, leading us to faith, that really... This was and is the only purpose for the law. That since we have come to faith in Christ, we no longer need to heed them. And we're no longer bound by them. How many here understand that they were an explanation of how those within the covenant of God are to live? That they were given by God to his people in order that he would be seen as glorious, awesome, and holy by the pagan people around them. That the Ten Commandments are not separated by tables, as we have been led to believe. The first four, dealing with our relationship with God, and then the last six, dealing with our actions with people. But that all ten of them speak to our heart towards God. That since we are of this covenant community. And since he has given us his spirit to dwell inside of us, that we are to emulate him in our actions. And that the Ten Commandments show us how we are to emulate him in order that we can rightly represent him to the pagan nations that we live within. We're coming to the end of the Ten Commandments. And the closer that we get to the end, the more introspect these commands begin or become. The fifth command spoke of our relationship with our parents. The sixth command forbids the taking of human life. The seventh command forbids sex outside of marriage. The eighth command uh, forbids stealing. And now we come to the ninth command. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. In essence, this command forbids lying. And this is a real problem for every person. In a poll conducted by, for a book called The Day America Told the Truth, that'll be the day, 90% 90 of the people polled admitted to being deceitful about a list of subjects, the most common being their true feelings, income, accomplishments, their sex life, and even age. And in a Reader's Digest poll conducted in 2004, of the 3,000 plus Reader's Digest um, 
uh, people, 93% of them reported one or more kinds of dishonesty at school or work. 93% of those people reported one or more dishonest acts in the marketplace. And 96% of those people reported lying or committing um, other dishonest acts towards family and friends. The reality is, and this is reality, we actually do think that we're good people. When we look at the Ten Commandments, we don't see ourselves as transgressors of them. We actually still use them as a checklist. We convince ourselves that we don't covet that we aren't liars, that we don't steal, that we aren't murderers, and that we are not most definitely adulterers, and that we do honor our parents. After all, we are good Christians. We're good people, aren't we? This is and was the issue, issue that has plagued humanity ever since we have become self-aware. We compare ourselves with ourselves and hardly ever find ourselves lacking. When Adam sinned against God and ate of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, he became self-aware. This is what that fruit produced within him. And even the serpent, that being who is described as being the most crafty of any other that God had created, he understood that all he needed to do to destroy the being that God had placed his own breath within, that he had created in his own image, all he needed to do to get Adam to do was to act on a lie that he is telling. Act on Adam's own selfish desire and he would then become self-aware. And this is the thing that the serpent said to Eve and Adam. Genesis 3, verses 4 and 5. The serpent said to the woman, and to Adam as well, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. But he didn't tell the whole truth, however. He told a half-truth, just as Adam had told a half-truth to Eve before this event. He had lied to her by telling her that God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die, Genesis 3.3. And we still to this day are dealing with the effects of the lies of Adam and the lies of that serpent. And we still compare ourselves with our own image, with the other image bearers around us, and actually think that we are actually keeping the Ten Commandments. You may have noticed I've entitled this sermon, Liar. And that's because that's exactly what you are and what I am. Not just having told a lie once in our life, or perhaps even once years ago, or even once last year. But once we use the word of God to illuminate the meaning behind this command, we will see that when held to the, compa the comparison that really matters, we all fail. 
So here's the approach I'm going to take in dealing with this command. First, we're going to lo actually look at the command itself to determine what it says. Second, we're going to look at the command to determine what it prohibits. And then finally, we're going to look at the command in comparison to the standard with which we are held. So, what does this command actually say? It says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. So the first thing that we are to understand is that this command is directed towards somebody. And in this instance, that someone is anyone within the covenant of God. This is the covenant community that he, God, is speaking from over Mount Sinai on that day. As we understand from scripture, it wasn't Moses giving the law, it was God. And this covenant is merely a restating of the covenant that God made with Abraham. as found in such places as Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 11, which telleth, For you are a people holy to Yahweh your God. Yahweh your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that Yahweh set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because Yahweh loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that Yahweh has brought you out of with the mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that Yahweh your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. And he will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. And this covenant is not to an ethnic group of people, as we're told in Galatians 3.7, which tells us there, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. This covenant, these commands, are therefore to be rightly understood, to being given to the redeemed in Christ, given to Christians, given to us. And we're not to bear false witness against our neighbor. So who's our neighbor? Are they the folks that are just living around the housing tract around me? Well, the Israelites held that their neighbors were only their ethnic brothers. And they used Leviticus 19.18 as the basis of their thinking, which says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. But Jesus, however, corrected this wrong thinking in Luke 10, beginning in verse 25. When one of, the, of these ethnic people came to him, wanting to put him to the test and said, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord with all, your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he... Desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, Who's my neighbor? And Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him, beat him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, 
he passed by him on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him, and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he sent him, uh, he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay to you when I come back. Which one of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So every person that you come into contact with is your neighbor. But did you notice something within that conversation, the one that I just read? Did you notice that when the lawyer came to Jesus and gave him the correct answer concerning how to inherit eternal life, that being, you shall love your Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor yourself. And when Jesus told him to do this and you will live, never once did that man actually even think that he was not doing this. What his question was centered on was the people all around him, not the evil, that vile nature within him. Somebody had been lying to that lawyer to make him think that he actually did love the Lord with all his heart, all his soul, and all his strength. So, now we know who this command is speaking to and even about. But what is it prohibiting when it says not to bear false witness? In the most narrow of definitions, bearing false witness is lying in court, bearing false testimony. And the ancients understood this, uh, false, this false testimony to not only include lying in court, but also not coming forward with relevant testimony in a response to a public charge. We're told in Leviticus 5.1, if a person sins because he does not speak up when he hears a public charge to testify regarding something that he has seen or learned about, he will be held responsible. But having said this, it's very easy to determine from Scripture that what the ninth command is prohibiting is much more than just how we act and what testimony we give in a court of law. Proverbs 6, verses 16 through 19 these six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are abomination to him. I want to stop right there. These seven things that I'm going to read next aren't just things that God has a dislike for. Things that he prefers to avoid. And God doesn't use that word hate like how we misuse that word saying that I hate the Dallas Cowboys. These are things that he hates. These are abomination to him. And here's that list. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift and running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among brethren. Of these seven things that God hates, five of them are covered in the ninth commandment. A lying tongue, a heart that divides wicked plans, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. And if that verse is not clear enough about 
that false, um, bearing false witness is the same as lying. Then I present for your consideration Proverbs 14.5. A faithful witness does not lie, but a false witness breathes out lies. So bearing false witness is the same as lying. So what is lying? And why is lying wrong? Well, lying is not telling the truth. It's saying that a man is a woman or that a woman is a man. It's, not call, it's, it's calling sin not sin. It's calling those things that God says are an abomination to him morally indifferent, maybe even permissible. But lying is much more than just that. It's also telling the truth in such a way that those that are listening will believe something that is not the truth. Masks saves lives. That's a great example of a lie. Do masks actually save lives? Can a mask save a life of a person? Well, if you're scuba diving, a mask can certainly save your life. If you're fighting a fire, a mask can certainly save a life. So in essence, do masks actually save lives? Yes. But the lie happens when that statement is made universally as a catchphrase, a soundbite, to mean that wearing a flimsy piece of, cl of a cloth-like substance will prevent you from either getting or giving the most deadly virus that man has ever known, at least based upon the actions of those who are in the know, those that have the power, the ones that have taken oaths of office to actually uphold the truth. Lying is causing someone to believe something that is not true. And doing it intentionally is lying. And you can also lie by teaching or proclaiming false things. Adam's sin against God is a great example of this. God told Adam, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Genesis 2.17 Adam told Eve, you shall not even the, eat of the free of the true that it, the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Neither that shall you touch it, lest you die. You see, Adam wanted to protect Eve, but in his desire to do this, he added to the word of God. He thought that the prohibition by God wasn't severe enough to protect her; that he actually knew better than God. So he added an extra layer of protection, an extra hedge of protection. Do not touch. But then, when the master liar shows up on the scene, holding that fruit in his hands, throwing it up and down, massaging it, looking over at Eve and asking her, did God actually say you shall not eat of the, any, free in the, the, any tree in the garden? And her response to him was, oh, we maybe eat of any of the trees of the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the, the, fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said, you won't die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight for the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took in of the fruit and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Genesis 3, 1 through 6. Do you see 
how Adam's lack of faith in God, Adam's lack of faith in God's word was made manifest in a lie, which was then used by the master liar to deceive Eve. She saw that serpent handling that fruit that, that she had thought. She thought that God said, if, if you touch this, you will die. And he's touching it. And he didn't die. She was misled to believe something about God by Adam. She believed that God was a liar and that he couldn't be trusted. And this all came from a seemingly innocent little white lie told by a man who loved his wife. And what Adam did there is still being done to this day, lying about God by proclaiming things about his character that are not true. And this little lie told with what Adam could have seen, could have been seen as best intentions toward his wife, was the foothold that Satan used to bring about the separation between God and man. Not much changed 4,000 years in the future from then. Acts chapter 5, but a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of, the, of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain yours? And after it was sold, wasn't it at your disposal? Why is it then that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. And the young men rose and wrapped him and carried him out and buried him. Verses 1 through 6. And not much has changed in the last 6,000 years either. Because we are still lying about the character of God for people. Such as telling people that God loves them as they are. Even though Psalms 5, verses 4 through 6 tell us, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you, and the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. Yahweh abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Or Psalm 111, verse 5, Yahweh tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Or telling people that God doesn't care about how they are to worship him. Even though we have been given an entire book dedicated to how he desired to be worshipped during this covenant period. Down to what the men who stood before him wore. What the instruments that those men who played worship were to use. And even what the table that held the bread was to look like. And even the exact dimensions and type of wood that must be used in constructing the tent of meeting. Or telling people that the word of God is not sufficient for salvation. That fresh and new inspired wisdom coming from fallible humans is equal to the word of God. Even though we have Revelation 22, 18 and 19, it says, I warn everyone who hears the words of this prophecy 
of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add him to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from them the words of this, of this book, of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. It's lying about God and telling them that Jesus is not the only way to the Father. That his mama is a much better advocate than he is. Even though we have John 14, 6, this is where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Lying about God and telling people that women can be pastors. That homosexuality is not a sin. And that the love of God is the same for all people. Even though we have 1 Timothy 2.12, Romans 1.26 and 27, and John 15.16. And the amazing thing about all this, though, is even though we're willing to lie about God for people, we then turn around and lie to people about other people. Only though we're much more refined than that. We don't call it lying. We, we just call it um, talking about or sharing, maybe even praying. But in reality, what's happening is actually gossip, which is in fact lying. It's telling partial truths, maybe even a whole truth as you know it about someone in order to have other people think less about them. And gossiping is not a little thing. It's murdering a person's character. It's slandering and spiteful and is spoken of by, uh, by God in Romans 1 as a way, a sure way, that we, a person can be seen as being given over by God to their sin. Verse 28, And since they didn't see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, they're full of envy, murder, strife, deceitful, maliciousness. They're gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. This is not, that list is not, you are some of these, you might be one of these. If you are outside of Christ, you're all of these. Before Christ. We were all of these. And even after Christ, we are still all of these. Gossip is bearing false witness, just as telling little white lies. Not being completely honest when you're asked, Honey, is my cooking good? Um, do these pants make me look fat? Or, honey, what's wrong? <laughs> Nothing. I'm fine when, in fact, you know that there's something wrong. Lying is telling someone, oh, man, sorry I didn't see your call. I, I didn't see that text uh, or that email when it came in. Lying is having your wife, your husband, your son, your daughter, your dog. Tell someone that's calling for you, uh, he's busy right now. Um, he, he can't come to the phone. These all break the ninth commandment. 
and not prizing truth as highly as God does. And this is the central issue within all humans, including us. We, the redeemed, are still afflicted with an aversion to the truth. By the way, that's a politically correct way of actually saying somebody is a liar. They just have an affliction um, with an, or an aversion to actually telling the truth. We really are like Pontius Pilate who said to Jesus, what is truth? As if it was something that couldn't be known. Or even as if there is no such thing as absolute truth. And what's the big deal? Well, truth is tied in with God. God has proclaimed to himself that God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Numbers 23, 19. Lying is one of those three things that God cannot do. And he says of himself in Hebrews 6, 18, it's impossible for him to lie. And Jesus, God incarnate, said of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me, John 14, 6. And we, the redeemed, we understand that he only, that he only is the way that anybody can come to the Father. He is that way. And we even say that he is the life. We understand that he said, I came that they, that they have life and life more abundantly, John 10, 10. But somehow we miss that central thing that he said. I am the truth. And this wasn't an isolated claim of being the truth. John 17, 17, he said, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. John 8, 31 and 32. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. John 1, 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And Jesus saying of this Holy Spirit that regenerated our hearts in John 16, 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak from his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. In 2 Timothy 2.15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Truth it's such a big deal because it's tied in with the holiness of God. The holiness of God is the supreme attribute of his. It's the only one that the angels proclaim to the highest degree in telling us that he is holy, holy, holy. As in Isaiah 6.3. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Do you recall the events that surrounded the, these angels crying out that God is holy, holy, holy? It was that same time that Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, sitting on his throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And his presence caused the foundation of the world to shake. 
And it was then that Isaiah cried out, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, Yahweh of hosts, Isaiah 6.5. It wasn't the thought life of Isaiah that came rushing to the forefront of his mind at the glory of God. It wasn't stealing or adultery or not honoring his parents or even worshiping false gods. The sin that tormented this man more than any other was the sin of unclean lips, lying. And at the end of the age, at the fulfillment of this covenant, lying is still at the forefront of the mind of God. Revelations 21, 5 through 8. And he who was seated on, seated on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he also said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Just to be clear, this is God speaking here. God, the Father, God, the Son, and he, they, are promising eternal abundant life to a certain set of people. And here is that separation between those that he is that he's promising eternal life to and those that he is not. The dividing line between those that have the Son, those that are of the Father because of the Son, those whose robes are washed clean by the blood of the Lamb, those and those that are not. But it's for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So what are we? Those that identify with the Son, what are we to do with this? How are we to act in light of this truth of the word of God? the truth that has shown us that we are liars. First, we have to ask ourselves, does this even matter to you? If it does, you will heed the admonishment to guard your tongue. Knowing that, as James said, so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is, is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea and creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessings and cursings. My brothers, these things ought not to be. Does it spring forth from the same um, water opening, fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree 
bear olives? Can a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. That's James chapter 3, verses 5 through 12. We wrongly have been told that the book of James is all concerned primarily about works. But would you believe that a major issue in the book of James, the one that he's writing about, is lying? James 1, 5 and 6. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord, because he's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. James 1.13, let no one say when, I, when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. That man is lying. James 1, 16 through 18. Do not be deceived. Don't believe lies, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will will he, uh, will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the person, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. James is telling us that the cure for lying is, is not just to do better. He's telling us the cure is to immerse yourself in the truth, to surround yourself with it, to make it your daily bread, to make it your meat and your drink. And then in verse 22, he tells us not to lie to ourselves concerning our salvations. He says, do not be doers of the word and not hearers, only deceiving yourself. Do you know who it is who has lied to you more than any other person? Not your husband. And it's not your wife. It's yourself. It was you that told you, man, I'm good looking, when really you're just average. It was you that told you, clicking on that site is really no big deal. It was you that actually made you think that you're much more of a big deal than you are. We must realize that at our core, even after salvation, we are still just liars. But prior to salvation, we didn't care. And we could, do no we could do nothing about being a liar. But as James will go on to tell us, after salvation, now there is something that we can do about this. He says, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, 
Being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks that he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this person's religion is worthless. Verses 23 through 26. Saints, when you look at the law of God, do you see a law of condemnation? Do you, when you hear the law, when you hear that you shall not steal and realize that you do steal, that you're not a good investor, not a good investor of the gifts that God has given you. You may be able to invest money and make more money, but are you a good investor of the thing that really matters? The gifts that God has given you. When you realize that you do murder people in your heart, that you do not love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, does this matter? Do you care? Or are you one of these people that just feel hopelessly condemned by the law of God? If you are in Christ, saints, you are supposed to understand the law in a completely different, in a completely new way. It's no longer the law that kills, that condemns. It's the law that convicts. But it's now, as Jane would say, a law of liberty. We look at it and see what it says and what it says and understand that it is perfect, that the law is holy. And you know in your heart, I know in my heart, I can never keep that. And I deserve, therefore, to die and be utterly sent to hell for all eternity. Because I break the word of God, the law of God. And this law represents God, the God that created me and made that original covenant with us, the one that I have transgressed. But you look at this ninth command, to not lie, and you know that you are a liar. And you rejoice. This is what the book of James is really about. The perfect law, perfectly shining on all humanity, the perfection of God and the sinfulness of man. And we are to rejoice in that we cannot keep it. And we are to rejoice that God is just in sending all humanity to an eternity of hell because of his truth, of his holiness. How does James say that we can actually do this, though? That we can rejoice in this law? He tells us how in chapter 4 of the book of James. Turn with me there. Grab your Bible. Turn with me to James chapter 4. All the way to the other side. Beginning in verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And you don't have because you don't ask. And you ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly. To spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. 
Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Do you realize that this James, he's a pastor. And he's telling this to his congregation. He's telling them the truth. He's not flattering them with platitudes and, hey, just do better. Be better. God loves you as you are. He's telling them the truth in love. And saints, this is the reality of us as well. Because we're just like these saints were. We are a murderer, a coveter, an adulterer, a liar. But once again, Pastor James, after telling us the truth of who we are, the truth of the law of God, tells us how we are able to keep the law of God, verses 5 and 10. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And again, just so basic biblical understanding. Anytime you see that word therefore in scripture, you're meant to stop and ask yourself, what's it there for? Well, it's therefore always just to point you back to what has been said. This, therefore, is given us as a contrast. Those that see the law as a condemnation and those who see it as conviction, which is why James goes on to say, or do you suppose it is no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. And once again in verse 6, we see another therefore, another contrast. And after this contrast, the way, the way that those that are of the Lord are to act. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourself therefore to God. Resist the the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and weep and mourn. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. And what James is saying here is not that we are never to be joyful, that we must always walk around mourning and weeping. What he is saying is that only that those that are double-minded, that have deceived themselves into thinking that I am not a liar, I am not a thief, I am not a murderer, those are the ones that need to humble themselves. Those are the ones that will either humble themselves here because of the Holy Spirit, The spirit of truth is given to them or they will be humbled by God in an eternity of separation and punishment by God. Saints, the law of God is the law of God and it is holy, holy, holy. It's absolute. And people will either see it as a bummer or a blessing. Or for those that are outside of God, they either completely discount the law and they say, does not apply to me. Or they view it as a standard that can be achieved. And then they use humans as the litmus test against which they compare themselves in achieving this law. They're the ones that say that they are not liars. Well, yeah, they might confess to you. I don't tell the truth all the time, but I'm certainly not a liar. There's a difference between that. And I'm not an adulterer either. Yeah, maybe I'll look at porn every once in a while. Maybe just soft porn. But I'm, I'm not an adulterer. Or they're the ones that 
they will tell you every thief should be shot. Anybody that would take my stuff, they need to be shot. All thieves need to be locked up. But then they waste time or use that time that they've been given on selfish pursuits. They waste money and never give either one of those things, their time or their money, back to the one who gave it to them first. These are the ones that are under the condemnation of God, and they will be humbled by the law for all eternity. But for us, for the redeemed, we understand that the litmus test is not us. It's Jesus. If we are not perfect, we are under condemnation. And in this, we rejoice. You can look at the law and it can terrify you because you know that it represents the one that has made this covenant of grace with you. And you know, I know that I don't measure up, that I fail every single day and I deserve an eternity of hell. And I rejoice because I've been redeemed. I've been saved. Saved? Saved from what? And saved to what? Jesus Christ saves us from the condemnation of the law, Galatians 3.13. He freed us from all the law could not free us from, Acts 13.38-49. He saved us from the wrath of God, 1 Thessalonians 1.10 and 1 Thessalonians 5.9. He saved us from the power of death, 2 Timothy 1.10. This is that from list that we've been saved from. But what about what have we been saved to? I've made manifest your name to the people who you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word, John 17, 6. We have been saved to God. And we, like John, understand that we are looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own zealous or his own special people, zealous for good works. Titus 2, 13 and 14. We're saved to God, a special people, zealous for good works. But I don't feel zealous for good works. And as we've gone through these commands, I, I've seen that I'm breaking every one of these commands. And because of that, I ask myself, am I truly even saved? After all, if I was saved, wouldn't I be zealous for good works? Uh, if I was saved, I would no longer lie. I would no longer cheat. I, I would never, no longer steal, Right? Saints, we need to understand that the sanctification is a lifelong process where you do work at your own salvation with fear and trembling as we're told in Philippians 2.12. But remember Philippians 2.13. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And this is where those redeemed, where we understand as they look into the law of God and see that they are still, I'm still found wanting that the truth of 1 Corinthians 1.18 and 2 Corinthians 2.15, 
that we are being saved every moment of every day. We weren't just saved. We are being saved. That the blood of Christ is still cleansing us from our sins. Yes, it was a once undone act on the cross that is being practically played out every single moment in the life of every believer. And this is why we are told that he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them, Hebrews 7, 25. Until that day, the final judgment when we will forevermore be saved, Romans 5, 9. Saints, you are a liar. I am too. We need to own this truth. Know who you are. Don't deceive yourself. But don't just settle in this and indulge yourself in your flesh. But rejoice that you are a liar, but I'm not the liar that I once was. Live in the fullness of your salvation, that of the past, that of the present, and that of the future forevermore. May we, like Paul, our brother Paul, who said of this thing called salvation, he said, not that I've already obtained this or that I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. He said, brothers, I don't consider that I've made it my own, but one thing that I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward calling of God in Christ Jesus. And let those of us who are mature think this way. And if any other of you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. But let us hold true to what we have attained. And then he says something very, very troubling. He said, brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you, and even now tell you, with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And their glory is their shame, with, uh, with their minds set on the earthly things. But brothers, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Saints, we still are trapped in this lowly body of ours. And he will transform us by the power that enables him even to subject all things to him. Philippians 3, 12-21. Saints, Know who you are in Christ. Don't think so highly of yourselves. Don't look at the law of God and go, I got that. I'm a much better Christian than that person. Or that person is a much better Christian than me. Saints, we are to look at the law of God. The Ten Commandments still apply to us. They're still our test. This is still the bar to get into heaven. We're to look at that and find ourselves wanting. 
We need a Savior. And Christ has given himself for us. He keeps the Ten Commandments every single moment of every single day. And he shed his blood for us to redeem us. And in that, we are to glory. Glory in the fact that we are sinners. We don't deserve Christ's blood. He didn't save us when we were doing better, when we stopped lying. When we were the filthiest, the most sinful, that is when Christ saved you. And when you finally understand that your righteousness has no value, when you look at the ninth command and say, that is me, but praise God, I am his. Then, then, you'll understand the Ten Commandments and how glorious they are. Let's pray.